Yeah, uh, funny story though. My wife and I actually, we went to Cancun for our honeymoon. And really great time the whole time, except for the last several hours. We decided that let's just get ahead of the airport and go ahead and go there during the middle of the night so that we can just kind of be prepared, be there, get everything checked in. Because uh, I'm just one of those people who likes to have a, a sense of security <laughs> about all this stuff. Unfortunately, though, uh, we sort of got involved in a, a minor scam because we, we got to the airport and uh, there's a lot of, in the, at the front of the airport, there's going to be a lot of like taxis and things like that going on. And they made it look like the, the airport was closing down. And they approached my wife and I, and there was several other tourists like strewn about. And they were like, look, the airport's closing down. Uh, the police are going to come by to make sure no one's around here because people can't be hanging around. So we can take you to a hotel if you want. <laughs> There's going to be like a holiday inn and stuff like that. The, the issue was my wife and I didn't have any more cash on us. Uh, we had spent most of our cash throughout the week and especially on the taxi on the way there. So we were getting a little concerned. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm in a different country. Like, I don't know what the laws are, you know. <laughs> um, so we agreed to, to go with a, 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 another couple of tourists and we couldn't afford the Holiday Inn because we didn't have enough cash. So we decided to go to one of the cheaper places that they had available. And this was not the nicest place that I've ever seen. As we approached, uh, the neon lights are glowing. <laughs> it was kind of <laughs> sketchy. Um, and so my wife and I are just freaking out. Now, keep in mind, too, this is like my first time as a husband, and I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm going to get us killed here. Like, I, I'm way overreacting, but, you know, I've just failed as a husband. <laughs> um, I put us in a really dangerous situation. Um, turned out it was everything was okay, but it was just kind of a weird experience to be so out of my element, you know. Um, it turns out there was other families there, uh, but it definitely was kind of one of those, like, oh my gosh moments. Um, so needless to say, I haven't been back to Cancun in a little bit. <laughs> uh, but it is a beautiful place, as long as you um, don't go to the airport in the middle of the night. So uh, we're carrying on with our series. We're talking about being born blind, uh, specifically in, in John 9. Uh, if anybody remembers what we were talking about uh, last week, we were talking about the blind man who was uh, you know, received the miracle of sight, and now he um, can see, and he was being questioned by the religious authorities, and they ended up casting him out. And like my dad said, he got kicked out of his religion, got kicked out of the synagogue. So the last we left off, he's basically just kind of left to his own devices, simply for the fact of not denying his own miracle experience. Uh, so let's let's set the stage for a second for what we're going to be continuing to talk about. Um, so we got a guy. Uh, we can assume he was at least not a bad citizen, right? Uh, they didn't bring him up on any major charges. In fact, it seems like he was a good member of the community and was overall a good Jew, uh, but he did have this really crippling disability for back then. Uh, but here he was being criticized by his religious leaders, the teachers of the Law of Moses, being criticized for being on the receiving end of a miracle. Some even doubted that he was even blind, which I thought was kind of 
funny and ridiculous because these religious leaders are are the community leaders, and they're supposed to kind of know who's in the community. They probably passed by this guy many times, and if they didn't know he was blind to begin with, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> um, so anyway, they end up casting him out, and now he's, like I said, left to his own devices alone. Um, but if you want to turn with me to John 9, verse 35, starting with verse 35. So he's alone, previous verse, but then enter Jesus. I'll give you a second to turn there, and I think, uh, yeah, we do. Oh, I used one of the auto layouts for Google Slides, and it was for book report, so the summary part was not me. That was forgot to delete that. Anyway, uh, so starting verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. So when I first read that passage, I, I just thought it was really weird. <laughs> you, ever, you ever get to those sections and it's just really obscure, you know? Jesus, why do you got to be so obscure when you're, you're teaching some of these things? Um, but after reading it a couple more times, I began to realize that something is being communicated here that actually requires these really provocative statements that Jesus is making. Um, it's especially weird initially when I read it because, you know, who knows John 3.16, right? And basically the whole section there, it talks about how Jesus did not come into the world to judge, right? So that's kind of a a weird thing for him to say if he already said he didn't come into the world to judge. Well, we're going to look at this passage in a little bit of a different way than maybe you normally have. We're going to go line by line, paying special attention to some of the literary details that the writer is trying to give, give us along the way. So let's start with um, the first line. Remember, like I said, Jesus is not going to just leave this man to his own devices. He actually goes out and finds him after he was cast out. And as it says, Jesus heard the man, uh, heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? So what's, what's interesting here is he didn't come to the man with a sense of, like, encouragement. You know, he didn't come to him like, ah, it's okay, man, like, you didn't need that synagogue. It's ridiculous, you know. Um, no, he skips right over all that and goes straight to the point. So let's contrast this question to the ones that the Pharisees were asking. Remember we talked about it last week? They begin by making a note that Jesus could not be from God because, anybody remember? Anybody remember? It had to do something with him healing on a certain day on the Sabbath, yeah. So they, they write him off immediately, like, this guy could not be from God because he healed on the Sabbath. He broke one of the laws. Oh, my goodness. Um, Jesus, though, starts with this question as well, but not with any kind of bias against himself for healing on the Sabbath. I, he doesn't even go in to defend himself. He's simply inviting the man to have a chance at making a positive confession of faith. And then, you know, as we read, he answered, who is he? 
Lord, then I believe in him. Jesus said to him, you've both seen him, and he's the one talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So based off this immediate acceptance of Jesus, you can tell that the, the man who was blind and now sees that he already knows whether he believes in the Son of God. I mean, it's just, boom, of course. He just needed to put a face to the name. Now, the next few passages, though, are the really important ones, and they're the weird ones that I was talking about. And if you follow along with me closely, there's a really profound truth being communicated here that can be lost if you just kind of glance over it. So, starting with that, that first line there, and Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who may see, who see, may become blind. So for judgment, I came into this world. In pop culture, we're taught that Christianity, that Christ, he's, he's not a judging figure. He's about love, man. Love and peace and acceptance and all these wonderful things. So it's, it's weird for him to say, for judgment, I came into this world. I thought you came into this world because you loved us. Um, and, you know, thinking about John 3.16, you know, the thing that's on football players' eyes, the caption for all of our Christian Instagram posts, that and Jeremiah 29, 11. Yeah. Both of those make up a majority of our Christian Instagram posts. Um, but you know what? Let's look at John 3, 16. Uh, so anybody know John 3, 16 from the top of their head? What is it? It's for God so loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Yeah. So we're all, we're all really familiar with that. But if you go to the very next line, it starts talking about this uh, particular subject. It says, for God did not, I think it's up here actually, wait, let's go to the next one. There we go, yeah. Um, so for, on line 17, it says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So right there, 18 and 19. In, in 19, uh, you could almost actually just read this backwards, and it makes a little bit more sense. But 19 is talking about how God's divine plan was to have us be in relationship with him, to be in existence with him, uh, in the divine. But humanity rejected him. Because of that, we're, not, we're now all guilty as sinners. And by this, I don't just mean that we do bad things, uh, that we cut people off in traffic, that we curse every once in a while. I mean that we are, by our very nature, corrupted by sin and compelled to commit sins. Men love the darkness rather than the light, and in 18, we're introduced to God's solution to this ordeal, sending his son to live, to bring the truth, to die on the cross, and be resurrected. Through this, he made, has made a way for us to be back into God's original plan, and we become blameless through him. But if you rejected this plan, as it says, you've been judged already. You cannot lift the corruption of sin without Jesus, and therefore the corruption remains. So Jesus is most definitely in the business of being a judge, but a righteous judge, and he is also our merciful Savior, and those two things kind of come in balance. 
obviously he's not being judgmental in the sense of accusing, and I think that's where we get confused about, you know, God's a God of love and not, he won't judge you. Um, accusing is more like, like a child. Ha ha, look at all the bad things that you've done. No, he's not, he's not about that. He's the standard of righteous, righteousness, standard of righteous person, and his goal is giving life back to your soul. Uh, so, in that line, so that those who do, so the next part of that line on uh, 39 says, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. That's a really weird one that I had a lot of trouble with because it just seems like immediately contradicting statements. But as I said, after reading a couple times, uh, it's kind of meant to be weird. In fact, it's really the, the irony of the entire passage, the irony of Jesus' entire ministry. He came to make those who don't see, see, and those who see become blind. Now, it's pretty funny because the, the Pharisees are immediately worried about this. They, they think that he's literally talking about making them blind. Um, and I don't blame them. I mean, they just saw this guy heal somebody from blindness. It wouldn't be that much of a stretch to think he was announcing reversing everybody's sight because you see there when they, they say, um, we're not blind too, are we? They're kind of like freaking out, like, oh, this guy's about to just make us all <laughs> make us all become blind. No, what I think is going on here is that Jesus is turning the system upside down. He's literally flipping the script, so to say. So the Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They're not necessarily bad, bad people. They're looking... They're looking out for their fellow man by helping them understand how to live as closely to being righteous uh, as possible, Committi- and helping them like try to commit the least amount of sin they possibly can. Um, they had all these really interesting ways of getting around working on the Sabbath, like they could work um, by taking a... It was like a bucket or something and, and putting it over here and then they could take a few steps and then to pick it up and put it over here. So there was a lot of like really interesting rules about how to, how to live as closely to righteousness as possible and committing the least amount of sin. After all, I th- uh, the law of Moses was a gift to humanity when they first got it because beforehand they had no revelation from God um, that would teach us how to live in a way to bring glory to God. However, as soon as Jesus hits the scene, this is where the whole system becomes flipped upside down. The law of Moses and the Ten Commandments were always a pointer. It pointed people to a far-off time where a Messiah would come to actually fulfill the law. Because no one else could do it. I mean, all the laws sound easy enough, but as adults, we can all agree even just the Ten Commandments are really impossible to live out. Do not lie, cheat, or steal. I mean, just how many of us, you know, right? Nobody? Okay. I'm the only one. Um, yeah, just lie, cheat, or steal. Uh, or how about, who? Uh, you know, this one. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. You know, don't have envy or jealousy for somebody else's things. It's hard. Uh, even those simplistic laws end up being so difficult and outright impossible to follow. But, you know, enter Jesus, 
He lived the righteous life. It was so impossible for us to do so because of sin, God literally had to come down in flesh and do it for us. So the law of Moses was a pointer, and it was pointing to Jesus. So, coming back to verse 39, as soon as Jesus hits the scene, all these teachers of the law are suddenly fools. They went from being the experts to being the amateurs. Because the natural progression of their faith, their understanding of God and the laws, should lead them to a positive confession of faith in Jesus because he was the one prophesied about. He was the Lord. Was, is the Lord, sorry. But it doesn't. It doesn't lead to that confession for some reason. So all the teaching they do about righteousness now all of a sudden becomes completely pointless. There's no substance to it anymore because they've rejected the one whom the righteousness was all about. Take all the righteous deeds, put them in the corner with all the dirty washcloths, they aren't worth anything anymore. So this statement, so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind, is meant to be provocative. The arrival of Jesus polarized the narrative because Jesus is kind of a polarizing figure. So the irony is that the religious leaders who cast out the blind man who was healed, in reality, they ended up being the ones outside the whole time. And that's kind of the big irony of this narrative. So finally, in verse, uh, verse 40 and 41, Looking back at that, it says, Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. Okay, look, I love my wife. She's my best friend. And I really cannot imagine a happier life where she's not also in it. But... There are things, as in all marriages, that can just drive you insane. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily her fault. It's just our personalities, right? <laughs> uh, for instance, I'm, I'm not known for my attention to detail when it comes to cleaning. I might be the only guy in the world like that, right? Um, but, you know, when it comes to making the bed, <laughs> Lauren is locked in like she wants it made every day and I'm telling you there have been times where we are less than an hour out from just going to bed and being done for the day and she still makes the bed if it wasn't made <laughs> so it's it's really important for her if I don't make the bed then there's you know consequences um, <laughs> hits me over the head no just kidding um but what I have found is, even if I make the bed, there are still consequences, because I never make it right. <laughs> um, that's how I discovered women must be really good at geometry, because she has these exact measurements in mind that I'm just not at all uh, aware of. But, so what's the issue here? Do I just not care? A little bit, <laughs> but I do try. Um, the, the one big issue here, uh, it's, is a problem of vision. When I walk into and out of a room, I just don't notice certain things. 
they don't come to my mind as something important or something that needs to get done. In other words, I'm blind to it, right? In a sort of metaphorical sense. And sometimes I'm so blind to it that I don't even know it's an issue until she tells me. Boy, does she tell me. Um, it took someone with sight for those kinds of things to point it out to me before I could address it or even realize it was a problem. And Jesus is the light in the darkness for us. Whether we are in, uh, whether we're, you know, some big-time religious leader or not, we're all in the same blind boat when it comes to righteousness. We're just stumbling around in darkness. So what made these particular religious leaders remain blind in Jesus' words? Well, it's what we talked about earlier. You know, here is Jesus, literally the object of their faith, God himself, the light being brought into the darkness. But they wanted to continue stumbling around as if they were blind. They completely gave in to their pride. And this is kind of a warning to all believers. You know, what is the object of your faith? Have you been living out a religion that might not be very, quote-unquote, Christian at all? And that may sound like another provocative statement, but it's true. And it's what we need to ask um, ourselves from time to time. And I can, I can show you that by looking at a particular verse that I heard this week. Um, it's in, uh, you don't have to open it up, I'll just read it to you. It's a short little passage from Jeremiah 17, not Jeremiah 29, 11, but Jeremiah <laughs> 17, uh, it, 17 uh, verse 8. It says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited uh, salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So the interesting line there is, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. The object of their faith is the Lord. And when your trust is the Lord, that's the whole point of it. Um, it's not these these little things that you can do to be more Christian, to be uh, a better person, it's that you have a relationship with the one who it's all about. So the essence of this is what is the object of your faith? Is it Christ or is it something of the world? Anybody listen to Tim Keller sometimes? I love Tim Keller. Um, he has a really great way of kind of a method for discerning if this is uh, an issue for you, as it is for all of us, you know. Um, so the way to find out what the object of your faith is, is you, you ask yourself questions like, if, what is the one thing in my life where if I lost it right now, it would just totally destroy me? Um, another good one that I've heard before is, 
if you've gotten, if you go to heaven and you get all the amazing things, the gold pathways, uh, the big mansion, the big house in that song, it's a big, big house <laughs> uh, with lots and lots of food, lots and lots of games. If you got all that, but Jesus wasn't there, would that be enough? Would that be enough? Um, so if I can invite the worship team back up, I'm going to be closing out here in a second. But when we go back uh, to that thing that brought us here, we look at the gospel. Uh, we, we look at what it meant for us, how it changed us, how Jesus factors into that. And meditating on that will bring to light whether this religious life we are living is one of true faith or just one of blindness. Another way we do this is to, um, to seek God in prayer, reading the Bible, attending church, churches for community. As I said before, we're all blind, and it may take Jesus speaking to you through someone else to notice where your blind spots are. And finally, we also do this by living a life of humility. There's nothing more annoying than a know-it-all, am I right? <laughs> um, because oftentimes, conversations tend to be incredibly one-sided. And I like to be heard sometimes <laughs> if I'm in a conversation. Um, know-it-alls may know a thing or two, but they don't open themselves up to learn, if they, uh, to learn anything. If they go around acting like they know the answers to everything. Instead, we live a life of humility. This doesn't mean we're to be weak. Um, we're just to be strong and confident in the things that really matter, like our relationship to Jesus. And be on our toes about whether we're keeping that as the main priority in our lives. In practical speech, we should also be in a posture to learn, and heaven forbid, you know, listen to others every once in a while. So if you could bow your heads with me. Lord, uh, First of all, we just we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you point things out to us, Lord, where we have fallen short of making you the, the object of our faith, uh, the true desires of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you make it so apparent in our lives uh, just how much um, our relationship to you matters and how much we need you every single day. Uh, God, I pray that as we continue into this week um, and into this month and certainly into the rest of our lives, that that desire for you just continues to grow. Um, and Lord, if we are lacking in that mission, uh, God, I pray that you just bring that to light bring the light of your word and gospel into our lives so that we can see just how much that we need you. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.